Wooshka Studios. Listeners are advised that this podcast contains coarse language and adult themes and is not suitable for younger ears. It's a very moving um, thing to be here in Dorchester Street. It was where Barbara and the girls were last seen alive by their friends, the Gaten girls across the road. Um, the house has not changed one iota, really, since that horrific night in 74. Uh, and um, it is quite literally like it has frozen in time. So let's go and have a closer look at the McCulkin home. For years, this has been ground zero in my investigation into the killer, Vinco Dempsey. I've lost count of the times I've come to this street and studied the shabby little worker's cottage at number six, Dorchester Street, Highgate Hill, South Brisbane. It was from here on the night of Wednesday, January 16, 1974, that young mother, Barbara McCulkin, and her two daughters, Vicky, who was 13, and Leanne, who was just 11, were taken by family friend Vince for a joyride in his snappy orange Valiant charger. A quick cruise around the city with Vince and his mate Shorty Dubois. What harm could that do? Barbara left the lights on in the house and her purse on the fridge. She was wearing her slippers. She couldn't know that she and the girls were about to be driven to their deaths. It was here they were last seen alive. What was going through Vince's deranged mind that night? At the invitation of his mate, Billy McCulkin, Barbara's husband, he had stayed in the house for six weeks after he was released from Bogger Road Jail in early 1971. He knew Barbara and the girls well. What possessed him to take them all the way to bushland outside Warwick and rape and slaughter them? Why? I had never been inside the house in Dorchester Street. I had pored over the old crime scene photographs of the interior, the cheap furniture, the aquarium, the makeup and perfume on Barbara's dresser, the girls' bedrooms with roller skates by the door, and pictures of rock stars pinned to the walls. I had always wanted to get in there, into that haunted house to try and get a feel for the McCulkins' last moments on Earth. To stand where their killer, Vince, had stood. And on my last visit, I noticed that the front door was open. Hey. How are you? What's up? My name's Matt Condon. Yeah. I'm a writer. And I've published a book on Vince O'Dempsey and the McCulkin case. Yeah. And this is where the McCulkins live. Yeah, yeah, no, I always genuinely wondered if someone would come over and ask about it. Oh, seriously? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm, I live in Byron Bay, but I've come up to Brisbane to do some podcast stuff. Yeah. Uh, which I'm doing on Vince Dempsey. And I noticed the door open and I went, shit, should I try and see if I can have a look at the house? Yeah, yeah do you want to? Oh, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, come in. What was your name? Uh, Harry. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet How you. are you? I'm good, yeah. I was interested in it, but I've never known anyone to actually really know about it. Oh, seriously? Well... What do you want to know? From Wooshka Studios, I'm Matthew Condon, and this is Ghost Gate Road. In this episode, 
Vince shifts from country town thug to a life of big city gangs, underworld heavies and entrenched police corruption. Believe me, they're all scared of me, mate. All the cops are scared of me. His eyes is, is what stood out the most. Cold, black, icy-looking, made the hair in the back of his neck stand up and I looked at him. He can tell a lie, and believe me, you can have him there for five days, and he would still remember that littlest of a lie he told. And he remembered everything, mate. Right? So, without a doubt, in my mind, to get to be the very best detective, you have to have the very best informed. In the last week of December 1970, two prisoners inside Brisbane's Boggo Road Jail were woken at 4am. It was already warm, even at that hour, and the men washed up, had a cup of tea, dressed into civilian clothing, and were ordered to wait in the holding area. Both were set to be released from jail after lengthy sentences. One was Bob. That's not his real name who was 24, a car thief and rouseabout, and still bitter at having to spend almost five years in prison for a crime he says he did not commit. Wrong place, wrong time. The other man was Vince. He was 32. He'd served five years for stealing a safe from a department store, and he was about to be set free. I was put in touch with Bob through a good source, I was told Bob was a man of few words and that the odds of him talking to me were next to zero. Loose lips sink ships. Bob had an extensive criminal history and had been in and out of jail up and down Australia's eastern seaboard. And while he was cautious when I called, we ended up meeting for coffee in northern New South Wales and he grew to trust me. Then he started to open up about Vince and the day they were sprung from jail, or as Bob calls it, the boob, on the same day in 1970. And then we were walking up and down in the yard and there was this screw that was an arsehole called George Dale. So he got a bit sort of heavy-handed, like roughing me up with his hand up in the back of my suit coat and all this shit, you know. Mm. And he said, you'll be back. I said, I won't be back voluntarily, I can tell you. Mm. I said, not like you, you come here every day, voluntarily, and annoy people. Mm. said, uh, when I'm brought here, I'm brought here in chains. Vince thought that was funny. And then Vince had a bit of a laugh, and we were walking up and down after Dale stormed off, and he said, you know, he said, it's a black day for society today. It's a black day for society today. Seven words that Bob has thought about now for exactly 50 years. Bob and Vince had become friends in Bogger Road. Both were hard men. Both were career criminals. And here they were, about to step out into a new decade.
The 60s were dead, and the 70s herald a new life for Vinco Dempsey. Bob is an extraordinary storyteller. He's witty. He has a thousand tales about a lost generation of Australian criminals. And he will never forget what Vince told him in that holding yard at the close of 1970. We have discussed that precise moment many times. I mean, you said that great line to me, that it came out a bright, shining, shining monster, which is a great line. What do you think that second stretch in Bogger Road for Vince? Um, it's probably the worst thing, literally, for society to have put a psychopath like that in Bogger Road at that moment in his life when he's going to come out as this totally, fully-fledged psychopath. Well, he was one before he went there. But what do you think Bogger Road did to him? Oh, it just makes you a bit harder and more determined to, to you know, break the law. Uh, and I'm just trying to get at whether Vince used the time productively to, um, you know, sharpen his ambitions criminally. He would have been thinking how he could get a few hits in and price those what. It's a black day for society today. And what did you take that to mean back then? <laughs> the program never worked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best way I could describe it. Got to he, he wasn't going to get a job and settle down. At exactly 6am, Vince walked out the front gates of Boggo Road Jail and was a free man. A monster was on the loose. On that morning, Bob was met by his relatives outside the jail's front gates and taken home. One of Vince's brothers was waiting for him. The records show, however, that Vince did not go home to Warwick, where he had a de facto wife, Margaret, and a five-year-old daughter, Sharon, waiting, but to a house at 6 Dorchester Street at Highgate Hill, less than two kilometres from Boggo Road. Why didn't he go home straight away to his loved ones? He'd been locked up with hard men for years. Did he hesitate at the family responsibilities that awaited him? The small wooden workers' cottage in Dorchester Street, the house I visited at the beginning of this episode, was rented by Billy McCulkin and his family. Billy, a local petty gangster, thug and alcoholic, had stolen the safe from the Fortitude Valley department store in 1966 with Vince. Someone dobbed them into the police. Vince was jailed. Billy served a month on remand. But they were clearly close enough for Billy to invite Vince, when he got out of jail, to stay for several weeks at his home until Vince got back on his feet. Billy was married to Barbara, then in her late 20s. They had two young daughters, Vicky and Leanne. Did Billy know that he had a sexual predator under his roof for those six weeks? Billy would later tell police that Vince was a model lodger, that he was quiet and went to bed early. The other visitors to the house were not so well behaved. Dorchester Street became a bit of a clubhouse for Billy's criminal mates. 
And they were an eclectic crew. They included John Andrew Stewart, a wild and violent Westbrook graduate with movie star good looks, who built his reputation on stabbing a man when he was just a teenager. There was Billy Phillips, a tattooist, stolen goods fence and weapons dealer who'd ink women in exchange for sex. Then there was the Clockwork Orange Gang, named after the classic Stanley Kubrick film about a psychopath, Alex, and his gang of droogs who went on crime sprees where they raped and pillaged. In the film, Alex wears a bowler hat. The local clockwork gangers, however, all came from the rough, tough suburb of Chermside in Brisbane's inner north. The gang members were obsessed with American cars, particularly Studebakers, and had a couple in loud colours. At one stage, they also owned a hearse, which they called the party car. There was Tommy Clockwork Orange Hamilton, a feisty redhead, an aspiring boxer who sometimes affected the bowler hat of his delinquent movie hero. Keith Jimmy Meredith, he sported a monstrous afro and was nicknamed after his twin, guitar hero Jimi Hendrix. Peter Hall, the prankster. And Gary Shorty Dubois, short with long hair, a handlebar moustache, who had a passion for young girls and had a mouse tattooed on his penis. He was obsessed with American cult killer Charles Manson. Years later, Peter Hall told me about Shorty and the strange hold Vince had over him. I'm just wondering what, what it was, the relationship between Vince and Shorty. Shorty never was never afraid of Vince. I think he idolised him. Really? Yeah, I think uh, Dempsey had some sort of a spell over him. Mm. Shorty had been that uh, idiot over in America. Shorty became obsessed with cult killer Manson. He grew a Manson-like handlebar moustache and read about his hero in news magazines in prison. Friends said when he read about Manson, he whooped in admiration. Uh, Charles Manson? Yeah. At Dorchester Street, crimes were planned. And Billy and his mates discussed, at length, their peculiar dance with the corrupt police of the day, mainly Detective Glendon Patrick Hallahan and Detective Tony Murphy. Both men were feared officers who, at a whim, could frame you for anything from murder to shoplifting, and fit you with a, quote, present, like a gun or drugs. If you can't beat them, the crooks reasoned, join them. Hallahan was like Fagan out of Charles Dickens's famous novel about street urchin Oliver Twist, in control of his little band of artful dodgers. In the 60s, was there a suggestion that, um, was Hallahan in the background anywhere there? Yes. What, yes. what was his role? What was he up to? Yeah, we went to Hallahan, Tom spoke to him, and he got in contact with him and said to him, uh, 
you'll stay a detective sergeant for the rest of your career unless you help these boys and you'll get to move up the food chain. Well, so yeah, they took money and um, charges dropped down to next to nothing. And yeah, he did get to go up. He ended up an inspector. Criminal Gary Lawrence, who we've already met, trust me, you'll remember his voice when you hear it again, had countless run-ins with Hallahan and Murphy. He says both were extremely violent and corrupt to the core. While Murphy was the boss, Hallahan was often the muscle. That, that Tony Murphy, you know. When I went in there and insulting the police, I think it was three months or something, something like that. Well, when I got out, them days, when you were getting out and the police wanted to see you, <coughs> they'd hold you in between gates, right? Yeah. Well, him and Murphy and uh, him and Callahan picked me up and took me down underneath the Story Bridge and threatened to kill me and all that kind of bad. Really? Yeah, we don't want people like you fucking bashing police and all that fucking stuff, you know, because... Uh, and, and they threatened to kill me and everything. And I tell you what, I shit myself. Do you think and, um, Tony Murphy was capable of murder? Oh, fuck, of course he was. Yeah. Fuck me, dude. Yeah. Mate, believe me, they were all scared of him, mate. You know, all the coppers were scared of him. That's why <coughs> he was one of, the, one of the main movers in that... Uh, thing they had going, you know, yeah. and yet no one told on him. And he sat there glaring at them and not one, you know. Yeah. People didn't start talking about Murphy <coughs> until after he died. Yeah. Lawrence thought Hallahan was a thug, but that Murphy was pure evil. Hallahan, you know, <coughs> he was beyond weight. He was a fucking terrible cunt. Him. He was probably, he was worse than Murphy, but, I mean, and he was a sly bastard. He'd, he'd get other blokes to do his dirty work, you know. Yeah. He'd go, if he, he wanted a statement, he would get one of his cronies to take it, but he'd be there calling the shots what it is, but their name would be written on it so that you couldn't get up and say, oh, Murphy hated me. Yeah. But they say, but he didn't take the fucking record of interview. Yeah. Fucking bullshit. He was behind every fucking word that went in that record. Yeah. He was saying it all, you, you know what I mean? That's, yeah. He was a sly bastard, mate. And you, you picked him real, you know what I mean? Mate, you know, he had a photographic memory. Mm. That bloke, I'm telling you, he, that's why... He could fuck anybody, and when other cunts would fuck up, he would come back and fix it up because his memory was... Can you yeah. He could tell a lie, and, and believe me, you could have him there for five days and he would still remember that littlest of the lie he told, you know? Yeah. He, but to tell me that he... But at the end, he came over and he said he couldn't... You know, people, you'd go and see him, I can't remember. Fucking bullshit, <laughs> fair income. He would be mucking, mate. He remembers everything, mate. This was the deal in early 1971 with Vince out of jail. Corrupt police like Murphy, Hallahan and their underlings controlled the crime and the criminals played along as best they could to survive. You'll hear a lot more about police corruption as we go along. In the meantime, the Clockwork Orange Gang was cruising through Brisbane looking for trouble. Early 70s, so, so Shorty's out of jail. Um, you, you're all in Brisbane, you, you, you're driving around in the Studebakers, you're doing a bit of uh, break and enter, nothing too heavy, but just describe that world to me, if you can, Peter, but you're all, were you flatmating and bunking in together in various houses? We, we were at times, yeah, renting a house and all of us living in the house. Um, and when something bad went down and we had to get out of the house and that went split, go home to our 
our parents' houses, and then um, once we'd got another house where to stay, we'd we'd go and stay back there again. And yeah, yeah. So you were pretty close bunch of um, bunch of dudes at that period, obviously. Yeah. And um, what, what did you like about Shorty? What, what, what was the good side to him that, that attracted you as a friend? Um, well, he was, he was a good thief to work with. <laughs> Why was uh, that? <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we, it was sort of, you know, we had each other's backs at the time, back then. Yeah. Um, his joint was... Where we went, hung out. Yeah. yeah, it's really hard to put something on it. We we sort of like doing the same things, like yeah. And you, you trusted him, obviously. Back then, yeah. Back then, exactly. And the gang ramped up its illegal activities in the early seventies. And what sort of jobs would you do? It was just more or less random. Yeah. We we would go out during the day, um, see what. Uh, was about like trucks, deliveries, you know, you'd hoist from the back of the truck when the guy went inside doing the delivery, you'd run up and grab a couple of cartons, it was just grab what you could and if you saw something that was ripe to come back to that night, that was good, like we see cigarette deliveries, yeah. um, the supermarkets where you'd wait till we'd come back out and you'd just go in and they used to just put the cartons, big boxes of cartons, just over the chrome rails where you just walk inside, just lean over and pick them up. Oh. Because you did it in front of everyone, no one took any notice of you. Yeah, I, that sort of stuff, and we'd see where a big delivery would go. We'd go back that night and get, get around the alarm system. Or, so they were pretty easy to get around in those days. As for Vince the lodger of Dorchester Street, he received a surprise visit from his de facto wife, Margaret. She was trying to understand why he hadn't come home to Warwick. So in late February 1971, Vince went back to his hometown and tried to play the responsible husband and father. And he even got a job. A job he was perfectly suited for. He was employed as a slaughterman on a poultry farm. By a strange coincidence, the family of a colleague of mine when I worked at the Courier-Mail newspaper in Brisbane once owned a chicken factory in Warwick where Vince, fresh out of jail, took some work late in the summer of 1971. After following some leads, I managed to find a woman who actually worked there at the same time as Vince. She told me... He was built like a big shithouse back then when he got out. Vince would be there in the smoko room, eating his cake and chatting away. He was a very smart man, very cluey. But he had terrible eyes, scary blue eyes. They were chilling. They used to come off, all done by hand when he was there. We used to have a rotary plucker. They'd chop off their heads, it was pretty gruesome. They'd come onto the big stainless steel table and everyone would line up on both sides and he'd cut their feet off and cut their guts. Then he used to catch the chicks. He was pretty quick-tempered. He was quick-tempered. 
Vince's period as a squarehead or straight law-abiding citizen didn't last long. The poultry farm records show that he ceased employment on April 23, 1971. He'd managed nine weeks of gainful employment. It was a mugs game. He had bigger fish to fry. It was time to move back to the big smoke of Brisbane. Vince, his de facto Margaret and their child, Sharon, moved into a rental in Harcourt Street in New Farm in Brisbane, abutting Fortitude Valley in the city's inner northeast with its brothels, illegal casinos, dive bars and rowdy pubs. Vince needed some money coming in, so he called on his old mate Billy McCulkin, who secured him a job as bouncer and general dog's body at a shonky mock auctions shop in Queen Street, the city. The mock auction was a con that stretched back to Victorian England. Punters would enter the auction room and bid for wrapped packages. Unaware of the contents, they might pay peanuts for something genuinely valuable or good money for items that were worthless. Usually, they did their money. The scam, run by local horse racing identity and businessman Paul Mead, was financed by Sydney mob boss Frederick Paddles Anderson. Anderson supplied the auction goods, all stolen and shipped up from New South Wales. Vince, you might remember from a previous episode, did some work for Paddles in Sydney in 1965 before he was charged with carrying an unlicensed pistol. Now, at the mock auction, Vince fitted right in. He was connected again to the Sydney mob and he could flex his muscle and indulge in his love of violence on the door of the mock auctions. Mead's longtime assistant and lover, Estelle Long, would later admit to police. I had been in an on-again, off-again relationship with Paul Mead for about 17 years, prior to becoming involved with Billy McCulkin in 1973. I remember when I first learned who Vincent O'Dempsey was. I was warned by Paul Mead to stay away from him as he was a very dangerous man. I knew that Billy and O'Dempsey had known each other for many years. I remember hearing they did a safe job at Walton's. Brisbane's main drag is more gentrified these days. Today, not far from the old auction house, is Tiffany's, Louis Vuitton and other elite shopping destinations. But some places can't shake their history. So here we are outside 154. It was a part of the old Brisbane Arcade building. Three levels, which is um, still here. The Brisbane Arcade is still here. And the mock auction shop, it appears, is where there is now a Pandora jewellery store. And it was right by that door at Pandora's that Vince worked literally as a doorman. And um, he would keep out undesirables and he would keep out the police. He, in fact, had um, wit- many witnessed um, stand-up fights with O'Dempsey and interested members of the constabulary, and he kept them out. But let's go all the way back to 1971 for a moment. Through the auction, 
Vince had returned to working in the criminal underworld, and by complete chance, a young constable by the name of Alan Marshall remembers Vince working in Queen Street. A few years later, Marshall would be ordered to investigate Vince for the murder of the McCulkins, and he clearly recalls seeing Vince at 154 Queen Street. Those mock auctions, I mean, Vince had been released from jail at the end of 1970, so they were ostensibly run by um, Paul Mead, and the material for the mock auctions actually came from the gangster um, Frederick Paddles Anderson in Sydney. Okay. So there was a connection in Sydney with the underworld in Sydney, but Dempsey was working as a, well, strong arm, if you like. Yeah, I, I know he used to wrap stuff out in the back room. Yeah. Because uh, I found that out somewhere along the line. And I know that it, sometimes you go in and make a, you know, a bodgy bid for, for property just to bump the price and stuff up. Yeah. A young Peter Hall from the Clockwork Orange Gang also remembers Vince at the mock auctions. It was the first time Peter had ever laid eyes on him. And what did you remember what Vince looked like? I mean, was he... He was the bouncer at the door, right? Yeah. The thing uh, that stood out most, like, he not all that tall, a reasonable build on him, but his eyes is, is what stood out the most. Yeah, what, and, um, what, what, describe them to me, even the first time you met him. What, what, what struck you about them? Oh, cold black, icy-looking, uh, uh, sort of... I had hair in them days that made the hair on the back of my neck stand up when I looked at him. And, and um, were you aware that Vince was potentially a killer even at that point? Yeah, I, I knew he had a, a pretty bad reputation as far as hurting people, making them disappear. But it was sort of, knew nothing for sure, just sort of innuendos. Yeah. But as soon as I looked at him, I thought, well, it's a big chance that uh, this is is a bloke you can't really re- trust or rely on, you know? Yeah, did, did, I mean, apart from the eyes, did he have a sort of dangerous, uh, menacing air about him, do you think? Um, no, he didn't speak or, or anything like that to uh, sound dangerous. It's just his eyes, when you look at his eyes, yeah. and you, you realise that uh, he's quite handy with his fists. Yeah, then other stories came out later. Yeah. And then uh, the gun, and now he preferred the knife and things like that, yeah. So let's just take stock here for a moment. Vince has now had three stretches in jail. The first in the early 1960s for nearly kicking a police officer to death in Warwick. The second for carrying an illegal handgun in Sydney in 1965. And third for stealing a safe in Brisbane in 1966. He has a history of sexual assault. He has already been involved in dealing drugs. And Vince is a diagnosed psychopath. He is living with his de facto wife, Margaret, and child in one of the seediest parts of Brisbane. And he is earning a quid working for criminal identities in both Brisbane and Sydney. Vince's gangster mates going back to the 1960s will always tell you 
that Vince had an almost pathological hatred of the police, or the squiggly tails, as he used to call them. Hadn't he nearly beaten one to death? But that doesn't tell the true story. In fact, the reality is the opposite. When Vince settled in Brisbane in 1971, he committed one of the great cardinal sins of the criminal underworld. He began secretly working for the police as an informant. And he hooked up with not just any police officer, but none other than Detective Tony Murphy, a man both feared and admired. Murphy was widely known as a member of the corrupt Rat Pack, along with detectives Glenn Hallahan and Terry Lewis. All three had been mentored by corrupt former police commissioner Frank Bischoff during the 1950s and 60s. So here was Queensland's top detective getting into bed with Queensland's top criminal. I asked former Queensland police intelligence officer and undercover operative Jim Slade, who worked closely with Murphy for years, how Murphy's unique partnership with O'Dempsey may have come about. The only way for a detective to get up to the level of Glenn Patrick Hallahan, Cray, Roger Rogerson, Tony Murphy, etc., would be to start off very young. They would have well and truly known that their best tool to make them known firstly to their superiors, make the superiors look good in the face of uh, politicians to be able to control crime, was to have a very, very good stable of informants. So they would have started early and they would have been on the lookout for people like O'Dempsey um, and they would have cultivated them right from square one. And as I've said before, it works both ways. The criminal would have seen that it was an advantage to him. So without a doubt, in my mind, to get to be the very best detective, you have to have the very best informant. And that would mean the very best criminal of the day. Without a doubt. And a criminal that was not only organising things but had already networked his criminal associates to be across what they were planning and what they were doing as well. Yep. So the mathematics is logical, isn't it? The number one detective gets the number one criminal. Yes. And, he, and of course, he gets, the, uh, he gets the number one kudos through the media and, uh, as I say, his superiors uh, right up uh, to um, the political uh, end of town. And what in exchange does a man like Vince O'Dempsey get by hooking up with a man like Tony Murphy? So when he would have been working as an informant um, for uh, for Tony Murphy, we look at the stage uh, in a business where the first thing that you've got to look out for is your competition. And wow, what better way to get rid of your competition but have a, a very, very good police officer um, in your back pocket, um, so to speak, and to be able to call on him and get him to get rid of your competition uh, for you. Brisbane was rife with police corruption. It was also home to a burgeoning prostitution industry, still disorganised, ad hoc, a cottage industry in the early 70s, before the big madams came up from Sydney and revolutionised the business in the Queensland capital a few years later. But in 1971, the coppers needed an organising principle 
to make sure they received regular kickbacks. And that organising principal was Vince. Warren was a McDonald, worked for Vince for more than 20 years. He became known as Vince's apprentice, and there was very little Vince didn't confide in Wazza. I met McDonald a few years ago and immediately enjoyed his company. He has a hilarious turn of phrase, a sharp memory, a big laugh. And he remembers, like it was yesterday, Vince talking about those days in Brisbane in the early 1970s. And, and do you remember anything about... Um, I mean, Vince gets out in 1971 um, and his fortunes don't start to really pick up until sort of around 1972, when I think he must have got on board with the coppers to manage the brothels. Yeah, but maybe he never had much money. But back in 71, I mean, he I mean, he hooked up with Paul Mead, we know that. Yes, yes, yes. And the mock auctions. Yes. But that wouldn't have earned him much. No, no. So how did he survive? Oh, mate, look, bloody... Man, have been a tough guy, but... Getting a hit here today. A literal hit? Yeah, mate, they'd be, be terrible. They'd be terrible, bloody. Um, there'd be unsolved murders down in New South Wales if you're responsible for. Yeah, and this is in the early 70s. Yeah. Then into 1972, Vince suddenly appears flush with cash. He buys a bright orange Valiant Charger one of the most popular and eye-catching vehicles of its day. He paid $4,500 for it. The two-door, six-cylinder car was extremely popular in Australia in the early 1970s, helped by a string of television advertisements promoting the vehicle and its masculine chassis as sexy and an object of seduction and lust. The soft-porn movie star Alvin Purple, played by the actor Graham Blundell, featured in one of the ads in 1973, trailed by a gaggle of females hoping to get a lift with him in his new charger. The ads showed young women, men and even children crying out to the car and its drivers, Hey, Charger! while gesturing a V peace sign with their hands. Hey, Charger! virtually entered the language. Hey, Charger! The unbelievable can happen to you. Vince had even driven his distinctive car out to his hometown of Warwick on a few occasions to show it off. Everyone in Warwick knew about Vince's hot car. Next, he bought a part share in a block of land in Warwick with his new boss, Paul Mead. Where was the cash coming from? Wazza has a pretty good idea. Getting the rake off out of the sailors, out of the bowls. Yeah, yeah. And this was when he was the king of the brothels in Brisbane. Yes, he was a strong arm for the prostitutes. And would he, where would he be getting his kickbacks from? From the bowls. Yeah. See, everybody had to pay him. So... If you turned up on the corner and had a couple of moles, yeah. you'd get a fucking belt and he'd take your moles off you. Or if you went and did the right thing and asked permission, well, you can have that corner, but you've got to give me a rake off. 
Even at this early stage, however, Vince was tied up with corrupt police, especially Tony Murphy. Peter Hall didn't want to believe Vince had been a police informant. Only in recent years has he joined the dots. That's right. It doesn't make any sense that he could murder at will and yet never be charged with or, or, or taken to court to face those charges for decades. So how logic asks, how does that happen? He had to have been protected. That's it. There's only one answer. Mm. He's, he's, not, he's not that smart that he covered his tracks so well because there are a couple of witnesses with that um, bloke that they thought was in the dam. Yeah. He was last seen in the car with her, Dempsey. Yeah. You start thinking, well, how, how did he get away for all those years yeah. with what went down in between? And then when the McCulkins disappeared, there was just no doubt left at all that he was what you class as a protected species. And yeah. the reason why was because he was doing big favours to corrupt police. Yes. Vince had committed the unthinkable. He went into business with corrupt police. It's a secret he's tried to keep to this day. Only now have his criminal mates begun to air their suspicions. Wazza, however, has no doubts. Yeah, but he never mentioned any kickbacks to the cops. There must have been some. I remember saying that he was paying Murphy. So That Vince or paying Murphy? Uh, uh, Vince was paying Murphy. Ah, well, there's a direct connection there, isn't there? Because he, he said, um, he said to Dad, he said, fucking, don't worry about fucking Vince. He can't he pay, he pays fucking coppers. I've never paid a copper in my life, fucking uh. said. You know, you can't pay coppers. You know, I don't work with fucking coppers. He said, but fucking Vince has. Uh. Yeah. And he was paying Tony Murphy. Murphy. By early 1973... Vince was flying high. He'd settled in Brisbane. He'd dumped Margaret and his daughter Sharon and taken up with a new woman, prostitute and alcoholic, Diane Pritchard. He had his beloved Valiant Charger and his fingers in several illicit pies. And then a business opportunity came up. Vince was asked to organise an arson attack on Torino's, a restaurant in Fortitude Valley owned by the Ponticelli brothers for insurance purposes. Vince jumped at the chance and with Billy McCulkin, he planned the firebombing. They asked the Clockwork Orange boys to do the dirty work. This crime remained unsolved for almost 45 years. Only recently did Peter Hall, one of the crew tapped to blow up Torino's that night in February 1973, confess to the arson. Can you tell me about the the origins of the, the Torino's job? Oh, Torino's? Yeah. Yeah, I, I Dempsey contacted Shorty, and um, Shorty came back and said, you know, this needs to be done for insurance reasons, uh, and there's 500 there for us. So you got the job offer for Torino's, and that came via Vince through through Shorty? Yep. Um and what, what the night was set, and and um, did you put much thought into how you were going to, to burn it? Well, we just sort of get a couple of plastic containers and fill them up with petrol, and mm. 
we drove around, had a look, everything was quiet. Um, we parked the car away, walked back, went around, jammed the back door open, and we went in and had a look around in there. And then we just spread petrol everywhere, and that was pretty funny. Left enough in one of the things to run a trail out the back door. Yeah. And um, dropped a match in it. And instead of just catching fire like we thought it would, all the fumes had built up. And as we ran around the front across the road, it just blew the front of the building out. Just exploded. He could have done himself some damage there. Could have. (laughs) I thought, wow, we never do anything like that again. We'll have to remember that uh, the fumes built up and... The gang got out of there with their lives, and after the explosion, they were pumped with adrenaline. It was the biggest job of their criminal careers. Forget nicking electrical goods. This was fire and brimstone. This is what real gangsters did. Back in Dorchester Street, Barbara knew in advance about the Torino's job. How couldn't she? Her husband and Vince had planned it in the family home. Nobody was harmed in the blast. It was an insurance scam. And Billy got paid his share in cash. But Barbara was also picking up plans for another firebombing. This time, a nightclub in Fortitude Valley called the Whiskey A Go-Go, a late night dive in St. Paul's Terrace, run by crooks and bash merchants. How much did Barbara know? How could she have foreseen that 11 days after the Torino's blast, someone would torch the whiskey and within minutes lay claim to Australia's worst mass murder. I do, do think both police and Sydney gangsters were probably mixed up in it. In the whiskey? Yeah. Um, definitely don't think they meant to kill all their people. Yeah. I think it was an extortion attempt gone wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But from what big questions remain unanswered. Did Barbara know enough about the whiskey to have unwittingly signed her own death warrant? This innocent woman in her shabby cottage in Dorchester Street, trying to raise two kids, sewing their clothes, taking them to the local roller skating rink every weekend, doing absolutely everything in her power to give them a decent future. And on that terrible night, March 8, 1973, at 2.08am, when fire raced up the staircase of the nightclub and met its victims. Where was Vince O'Dempsey? Where was Vince when the whiskey blew? Ghostgate Road is produced by Wooshka Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. 
Visit GoSkateRoad.com for additional material and a full list of credits and search for the official GoSkateRoad discussion group on Facebook.